Chapter Two of There's Laughter in the Air, Radio's Top Comedians and Their Best Shows. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. There's Laughter in the Air, Radio's Top Comedians and Their Best Shows by Jack Gaver and Dave Stanley. Chapter Two Where There's Life Bob Hope. To hear Bob Hope carry on about his sugar scoop nose, chevalier lip, bashful hairline, and bulldozer chin, you'd think he was in a desperate way facially, although there's really nothing wrong with his countenance that a good year of plastic surgery couldn't fix. But his comedy talent is something else again. It's too late to remedy that. Not even tree surgery could rescue him from the limb he's got himself out on by being a really funny man. Hope's chief stock in trade is being comical at his own expense, both in the movies and on the radio. He's a hero with reverse English which has been through a couple of translations. He makes his point the hard way, and accumulates so much money in doing so, that Henry Morgenthau, Jr., anxious that nothing untoward befall such a splendid fellow, takes care of most of it for him. As a star exponent of the self-deprecatory or boy-do-I-stink school of acting, not to be confused with the Stanislavsky or oh-how-I-suffer method, Hope keeps in character much of the time off-mic and off-screen, with the able assistance of several friends who insist they are not picking on Hope, but only trying to tie the score and never quite making it. Chief of these is a notorious racetrack character and Mike Moner, of whom it can be said that while most radio comics have only their Crossley to bear, Hope also has his Crosby. Hope claims that Bing Crosby actually holds story conferences to dream up cracks to hurl at him, because Crosby, being a singer, has his brains around his Adam's apple, and hence hasn't the wit to think up an insult that would ruffle a thin-skinned mule let alone Hope, who has a hide like a calloused rhinoceros. It is only fair to add that Crosby denies this soft impeachment, and avers that, on the contrary, Hope is such a novice at raillery that he thinks badinage is something rolled by the ladies at the Red Cross. The Hope-Crosby acrimonies are not confined to the times when they are together working on the golf course or indulging in recreation on the picture lot, Hope thought he would have his mind fairly free for his work during the summer of 1944, when Crosby went to Europe to entertain troops. He should have known better. Crosby was in London when the stage-door canteen was opened there, and taking part in the festivities, which were being filmed for newsreels, he mentioned Hope in passing. It was unfortunate but true, he said, that Hope was getting a little old, was, in fact, developing a slouch-pouch. He said this was brought home forcibly to him during the making of their latest road picture, The Road to Utopia. This road, he added, undoubtedly was the cleanest they ever had travelled, because a certain large portion of Hope was dragging along it most of the way. Hope heard about the newsreel somewhere along the line of a cross-country plane jaunt connected with bond rallies. He could scarcely wait to reach New York to see it. The reel was run off for him at the short subject studio of Twentieth Century Fox, and it almost threw Hope into a laughing fit, 
for Derbingle was slightly vulnerable. He had been filmed without his customary hat and the commercial matting that does him for hair. When the latter is missing, the Crosby ears seem of greater prominence than usual. The picture, Hope commented with relish, will set Crosby's career back twenty years. Did you see those ears? A few minutes later, when Hope was on the set making a short to assist the tuberculosis fund drive, he began working on his public rebuttal. The script called for him to emerge from a house, start to address the audience, and get bumped out of the way by a man wheeling a huge sack of mail on a hand truck. "'Fan mail, no doubt,' said Hope, grinning. "'Yeah,' the man replied, "'for Crosby.' "'If it's for Crosby, it must be Girdles,' Hope retorted. Later he confided that he would have liked to have said toupees instead of girdles, but he thought maybe that was a little rough on his old pal. After all, Hope doesn't want to be too severe with Crosby. The latter's delayed-action racehorses have supplied him with gags of incalculable worth. In fact, Crosby maintains that if it had not been for his horses, Hope would have had to get off the air years ago by reason of running out of jokes and that would have been a very bad thing, as millions of Americans will tell you. For Hope, whether on radio or screen, is about as close to being everybody's favorite comedian as it is possible to get. He has a breezy, conversational personality, but he is never offensively brash. The basis of his humor is contradiction. Actually, Hope is a smart fall guy. How can you dislike a person who knows all the answers, yet always seems to come off no better, and possibly a little worse, than the average guy like yourself? Certain things scare you? Hope gets twice as scared, for half the reason. Were you played for a sucker? Brother, you have only to listen to or see Hope to know that, compared to what happened to him, you got an even break. Hope is the kid you went to school with, the guy who works in your office, the pal who guides you home at three o'clock in the morning. The ability to generate this feeling is not something you achieve by reading a book by Dale Carnegie before or after forty. You have to be born with it, and fortunately that's what the stork delivered, along with Leslie Towns, Bob Hope, at the home of William Henry and Avis Towns Hope, in Eltham, England, a suburb of London, on May 26, 1904. About four years after that event, the family—eventually there were seven sons, of whom Leslie was the fifth—migrated to the United States, and settled in Cleveland, Ohio. There is no truth to the rumor that they had to leave England because of Leslie's penchant for entertaining the neighbors. Young Hope and his brothers had the usual normal boyhood of members of a large family in ordinary circumstances, including occasional sessions with father in the woodshed. He gained some local fame as a boy singer, but nature put a crimp in that at the proper time. His first real job was working as a delivery boy for his brother Fred, who was a butcher. Somewhere along the line he changed his first name from Leslie to Lester, and he went all the way in name-changing when he entered the Golden Gloves boxing tournament of the Cleveland Plain Dealer by calling himself Packy East. He won his first fight, drew a bye in the second, and then bade good-bye to the ring when he was knocked cold in his next appearance. He went back to being Lester Hope. Hope negotiated the four years of high school in par. Then he got a job in the spare parts department of the Chandler Motor Company in Cleveland, 
and had an enjoyable time harmonizing with three other fellows who felt that singing was more important than handling auto parts the chandler people soon came to the conclusion that both they and hope would be happier apart during his high school years hope had picked up some dancing instruction and a mild acquaintance with the saxophone and he came to think more and more that he was cut out to be an entertainer amateur theater nights gave him experience if nothing else he taught dancing for a time when he was twenty-one he made his professional debut in cleveland helping to fill out the act of the late fatty arbuckle when the latter was making a comeback vaudeville tour arbuckle encouraged him a little and that was enough for a time hope who had made his final name change did a vaudeville act with a fellow named george byrne of columbus ohio they met while appearing in a tabloid musical show that toured small towns they danced sang and did a blackface routine they worked but didn't set the vaudeville circuits ablaze finally bob who had been practicing on his audiences whenever he could began to fancy himself a comedian and he went his way alone on that basis while he polished up his act he took any bookings he could get in the small time then he went to chicago to hit the big time nobody would listen to him before long he recalls i was four thousand dollars in debt i had holes in my shoes i was eating doughnuts and coffee and when i met a friend one day who bought me a luncheon featuring beefsteak i had forgotten whether you cut steak with a knife or drink it out of a spoon for no good reason that lunch was the turning point the friend extolled hope's talents to a booker who happened to have a decoration day date open in a small neighborhood theater hope did so well that he was offered a booking in a larger theater where he went for three days and stayed six months after that he got plenty of vaudeville work all over the country and was able to get out of debt and put some money aside naturally the next step was new york he played hard to get rejecting engagements in small houses eventually he got what he wanted scored in a big way and got an rko vaudeville contract the next step up was a broadway musical show ballyhoo of 1932 about all anyone remembers of that production now was hope breezing around in a pair of shorts in a nudist colony sketch and the first act finale in which a pair of the brewers big horses galumped along on a treadmill it wasn't a success but hope hit pay dirt in his next show in november nineteen thirty three jerome kern's roberta after that hope thought he'd better let hollywood look him over because it seemed to be in a bad way for personable young men with funny bones he got a screen test all right but bob's face didn't fit the hollywood conception of what could be palmed off on the public and nothing happened bob hustled back to broadway before the producers would have a chance to forget him and snagged further prominent employment in successful musical shows say when with harry richman zigfeld follies with fanny bryce and in nineteen thirty six red hot and blue with jimmy durante and ethel merman as far as the legitimate stage was concerned he was well established meanwhile he had landed his first radio jobs from december nineteen thirty four to april nineteen thirty five he was on Bromo Seltzer's Intimate Review. He did a variety show for the Atlantic Refining Company from November 1935 to September 1936, and followed this with the Rippling Rhythm Review for Woodbury Soap 
from April to September in 1937. Hope has written, in his cockeyed autobiography, They've Got Me Covered, that it was while I was on the Woodbury show that Paramount realized I was very stubborn and was going to stay in show business regardless of my talents. He got a part in the big broadcast of 1938, despite his refusal to take a test, and by a stroke of luck was paired with Shirley Ross in singing a song that swept the country, Thanks for the Memory. The popularity of the song naturally did its perpetrators no harm. Paramount apparently discovered that while Hope's features might not fit the classic mold, there was something beguiling about them, after all, at least they didn't keep people away from the box office. So he made five more pictures of average quality, and then hit the film jackpot when he got the hero-coward role in a remake of that old thriller The Cat and the Canary. After that it was the upper movie brackets for him, such films as Nothing But the Truth, Caught in the Draft, the road pictures with Crosby and Dorothy L'Amour, Louisiana Purchase, and Let's Face It. But back to radio. When Paramount summoned Hope to Hollywood, he began doing a program for the American Tobacco Company, which ran from December 1937 to March 1938. It was his fourth sponsor in four years. Later in 1938, he moved in on the Pepsodent toothpaste people, and they haven't been able to get rid of him since. Late in 1944, Hope signed a new ten-year contract with Pepsodent at approximately a million dollars a year, $25,000 a week, for 39 weeks annually. It is as the Pepsodent man that Hope has achieved his high place in radio. Although Bob has a strong reputation as an ad-libber and is at no loss in thinking up his own comic ideas, he employs half a dozen writers on his show. They dig for every laugh they can possibly get out of a given situation. Hope is a court of last resort when it comes to putting the final script into shape. The result is a bull's-eye, or close to it, every time, on the 10 p.m. Tuesday spot of the National Broadcasting Company's network. The general public has heard the Hope broadcasts since 1941, but it hasn't seen them because the comedian started playing his air shows solely for servicemen a few months before the United States got into the war. He and his fellow players travel to some camp or other service center every week for the broadcasts. His popularity among the G.I.s is unsurpassed and is not based solely on his appearances in this country. Hope made his first U.S.O. trip outside the States in the fall of 1942, going to Alaska with singer Francis Langford, guitarist-singer Tony Romano, and Jerry Colonna. The following year, with Jack Pepper replacing Colonna, Hope's troupe went to England, North Africa, Sicily, and Iceland. A little later, Hope made a swing around the Caribbean, and during the summer of 1944, he and five others toured some of the Pacific zones, he gave hundreds of shows and traveled nearly 150,000 miles on these jaunts. Out of these experiences, Hope wrote a book called I Never Left Home, published in the spring of 1944, which was a top bestseller for months. The royalties from the book went to the National War Fund. Hope's attitude toward his experiences is probably best summed up in the last paragraph of the book. It's fantastic. You do just a little bit for them, in comparison to what they're doing and risking for you, 
and you receive thousands of letters thanking you. They thank you. This brief resume of Hope's Hops makes it fairly obvious that he has had little, if any, home life since the war began. Yet he does have a home and family. Mrs. Hope is the former Dolores Reed, a beauty who made a living singing in theaters and nightclubs until Hope happened along and assumed the burden. A friend introduced them while Bob was appearing in Roberta, and he invited her to drop in and see the show. She went, rather expecting to find him in the chorus or a bit part, but found instead that he was one of the leading players, and that he made her laugh. A few months later Hope persuaded her that she should keep him around permanently. He argued that it would be more practical than for him to keep appearing in shows just to amuse her. They have two adopted children, Lena and Tony. Their home is at Toluca Lake, near Hollywood. Hope is a rarity among big money-makers among the acting folk. He handles most of his business affairs. He is reputed to get $150,000 a picture, and is supposed to make three of them a year. A slight contretemps developed in his film relations in November 1944, when Paramount announced he had been suspended because he did not show up for work on a new picture at a deadline time set by the studio. Hope felt his wartime activities would not permit him to make this third 1944 film, and outlined the situation for the press in his usual concise fashion. The studio says they've suspended me. They've got it all backwards. I've suspended them. But whoever suspended whom, it is likely that the country could survive a famine of Hope pictures. This is not true of his radio work, however. There are some fans who can scarcely get through the summer when Hope and his troupe are off the air. Like most comedians, Hope has his stooges. Even in his early radio days, he had a character known as Honey Child Wilder, long on drawl and short on gray matter, one of the most hilarious of this type radio has produced. For several years now his standby has been Jerry Colonna, a fellow who used to play in bands. Colonna's trademark is a black mustache of luxuriant dimensions, and he is the one for whom the term render a song was invented. His specialty is to tear limb from limb some immensely popular syrupy ballad dear to the hearts of all. He does it in horrendous fashion. But it's funny. Hope's radio program has contributed its share of stock sayings to the language, the most popular undoubtedly being, Who's Yehudi? Some of the others, which do not look like much on paper, but which assume a special significance once you've heard Hope say them, are, That's what I keep on telling them down at the office. You and your education. How do you like that traffic cop? It may be that one of these days Hope will look at his speedometer and ask himself where in the hell he's going in such a hurry that he hasn't been before. The answer, of course, will be nowhere, because he has covered a lot of ground in a short space of time, and it would be logical for him to climb out from behind the wheel and say, So long, guys, I'll walk from here in. But don't bet on it. He likes action. Hope Springs Eternal is no gag as far as he's concerned. End of chapter 2